Welcome to the Catholic Author Show, the show about fiction for modern Catholic authors. We talk creed, craft, and co-creation rooted in grit, grace, gods, and dragons. I'm your host, Dominic DeSouza, novel lover, all-around creative, and the founder of Catholic Author. We are here to inspire your faith and your fiction. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Today we're joined by Eleanor Nicholson, novelist, educator, homeschool mom, and lay Dominican. Welcome, Eleanor. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Dominic. Oh, it's going to be a fun discussion today. You've um, you've written a number of different books, so we're going to get into that in just a second. Let's jump into Eleanor. Can you share a little bit more about yourself? Uh, what is your backstory, and how did you get to where you are today? Well, I am, as you noticed. A homeschool mom. I'm also a graduated homeschooler, one of those good old geeky homeschoolers. I we were homeschooling before it was cool. Um, yes, uh, I can cite a homeschooler at 300 yards because I see myself. Um, but I was raised in a very narrative loving family, Catholic loving family, but narrative loving family. So stories were a part of that. So I love literature. I started writing stories from a very early age reading voraciously. My high school was reading. I mean, I did math too, but that was just to get back to the reading. Um, went and studied uh, in the university system, um, became very disgruntled, finished my degree, and then started writing again. I hadn't for a little while. Um, something about mainstream academia can kill uh, creativity. Um, but I write the sort of stories that I love. I always have. My stories are much better than they were when I was a child. Um, a lot of the work I've done is, uh, is the sort of, you said grit, it made me laugh, um, because I feel like so much of writing is grunt work. You feel called to write a narrative, you feel called to write. And um, I've done a lot of things that are not very glorious in terms of writing. I wrote a respiratory care lexicon once because need to pay the bills. But at the same time, I'm sorry. I was just saying that sounds breathtaking. It was really exciting. And there wasn't a clinch in the final page. It was really. Um, but so it's sort of that balance between the artistic impulse and the need to pay one's bills, which I think is really important for us to recognize as creatives. Um, but that in the end, the reason we write is because we have this desire to express a story. It's the way that I, uh, one of the ways that I think I, uh, my spiritual life is also expressed, definitely my interiority. So um, I've worked for a bunch of Catholic periodicals, Catholic publications, um, and then I gradually found my way to getting novels published in a Gothic vein. So uh, that's become one of my strongest genre tendencies is towards Gothic, so very outrageous novels, very outrageous novels. I hope funny novels because I require humor. It's one of my awkward coping mechanisms. Um, and my novel, Bloody Habit, came out with Ignatius Press in 2018. Sorry, I had to think which child, which baby I had at the time. <laughs> okay. And my new novel, Brother Wolf, is out with Chrism Press. Last came out last year. Again, I'm thinking in terms of babies. So that would be 2021. 
Um, all my novels line up with babies, but uh, no, it's a, uh, it's been a riotously. I mean, that just gives ride. a whole new meaning to being with book. You know, well, I, you, I write better. Also, I write yeah. better when I'm pregnant or postpartum because I'm not sleeping. So oh, nightmares, okay. right? Wow. Well, okay. Let's. I want to hear about Brother Wolf. What What is the the, the blurb for the story, and then? What is its backstory and then how did you come up with it, its origins, that sort of thing? Uh, the, I would say the, just to capture the whole plot, a young protagonist encounters a crew of werewolf hunters. There's a werewolf who is, he's a Franciscan and he's relapsed into lycanthropy and they're scouring Europe to look for him. That's... And the narrator <laughs> sort of attaches herself to the crew and helps track them down even though she has, she's not, Catholic, she has no credentials for the fight, but it's this re-enchanted world um, that absolutely attracts her. So um, it's a, it's it's pretty outrageous. Um, hopefully, though, with depth at the same time. Mm -hmm. I very much pride myself on the accuracy of my um, Thomistic appreciation for uh, demonology. I mean, as close as I can get to demonology, because I'm very easily scared. Right. And you said he's a Franciscan? Uh, he is. Uh, the, the, they are searching for Franciscan. So in my original Gothic novel, A Bloody Habit, I gave Dominicans the job of tracking down and dispatching vampires. Well, it sort of made sense that the Franciscans would take care of... Take care of the werewolves. Yeah. The werewolves. Oh, that's th this is a TV show I I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense too. So that I mean, yeah. your response to vampires is different from your response to werewolves. Vampires mm -hmm. are the undead; they're damned. You want to stake them, but werewolves you want to uh, rehabilitate. Hmm. So that means they can relapse. And my husband actually would listen to me go on and on one day about how vampire victims were like addicts, and I went on and on anyway. He listened very patiently. And about two days later, he came back and said, you're mistaken. Werewolves are much more like addicts. And I said, oh, this feeds into all of my ideas. So I had to you know, write, write a second okay. book. We'll get, we'll, we'll get to more of the, uh, the world building question in a moment. I'm just curious, do these novels live in the same universe? They do. And there are some characters who recur. My Dominican vampire slayers are back um, because they sort of have to be. Uh, I love the characters too much and they intrude. So uh -huh. there they are. Um, but the, it's not necessary to reach, read both. Of course, I'd love it if readers read both. And sure. I've really enjoyed the ones who've written to me and said, oh, I liked this mm -hmm. even better. Or, you know, it was great, but I really prefer the first one. And these are the reasons why. That's a lot mm -hmm. of fun. That's relationship with readers, which is just delicious yeah, as a writer. Yeah. That's awesome. What what is your your process for actually writing the book? I mean, I know you said you were you're pregnant, you didn't have a lot of sleep. So, how did you is it something how did you do it? How did you get the book written? Um, well, Bloody Habit took me 7 years and Brother Wolf took me 3, which felt really fast. Okay. There are five children in this house and we homeschool and I teach for homeschool connections and I mean it's just and, you know, there's laundry. So uh, a lot of it is characters pop into my head. I'm thinking through different scenes, trying to figure out how they piece together, writing notes everywhere. And then periodically I have time to dedicate to sculpting scenes. And then I go back and I revise and I throw a whole bunch out. 
I, I throw a, I throw a lot out. A lot of what I write gets thrown out and revised and polished. And the story and the plot arc emerge um, over time. And looking back, I can go, oh, that's what that was about. Oh, I see. So I have a lot of um, epiphanic moments in my own writing process of, oh, that's why that character's in here. Or this is also how I identify problems. Um, mechanically, it's just plugged in when I can fit it in around life. Um, but then looking back, I can say, wait, this isn't working. This isn't working. Ah, that's because I've drawn my characters into Paris in 1906 when the Dominicans were thrown out of France. So we have a problem. They wouldn't be here. <laughs> that's why it's not working. So wow. okay. it's we'll a lot it of bits and pieces everywhere. I'm bits and pieces all over the place usually. Mm -hmm. Cool. I want to talk about world building in just a moment here, but um, first, I'm curious: Do you have a favorite legend or a story that's that's uh, very formative to you, or something you like to think about, or you go back to a lot? In terms of the Gothic and specifically Brother yeah. Wolf, mm -hmm. I would say one of the two things one i was very drawn by the legend that says that if a werewolf someone who loves a werewolf recognizes the person the man behind the werewolf and calls him by name in the midst of the possession hmm. he will be freed of the curse that fascinates me um not going to say it necessarily works in my novel but alongside that i would say even more foundational is I have, I'm very attached to the Greek myth of Sparagmos, which is associated with um, figures like Actian. Now, Actian was a hunter in Greek mythology, and he saw the goddess Diana bathing. And she was so infuriated that she turned him into a stag, and he was pursued by his own hounds and torn to pieces. Now, okay, so that's pretty dark, right? But for me, when you look over literary history and you see this picked up by Petrarch, by Shakespeare, and this theme is sort of revisited, they're saying that in the Christian understanding, you encounter the divine and yes, you're torn to shreds, but you're radically made new. Mm -hmm. So for me, and this really describes the spiritual life for me, <laughs> is that when you get closer to God, he explodes you. He tears you to pieces, but it's because you're being radically made new. And it's a beautiful and excruciating process. Wow. So Spragmos, which is actually the um, license plate on my car, um, is for me, it's, it's all over Brother Wolf, but it's also all over the creative process that if I don't embrace the radical remaking of me and of my story and of my characters, there's no growth. That doesn't mean I go rushing out and saying, oh, yay, God, ritually dismember my heart. But <laughs> recognizing that growth, even as, as a writer, as a mother, I mean, the whole gamut, it's mm -hmm. that that openness to uh, to being radically mm -hmm. remade is just critical, I think. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I mean, I grew up reading that myth, but I like how you you referenced these these great thinkers who who flipped it around or gave it a fresh interpretation because I could see the original one being, you know, if you, you grasp at the divine, you can't get it that way. And then you're going to end up becoming less than yourself. And then you're, you, you tear yourself apart the rest of your life because you tried to take what 
cannot be taken. It must be humbly requested or, you know, it has to be given to you from the other side. Um, yeah. But then to flip it around, the, you know, the way that you have, that's, well, I mean, I could see both, I guess. So that's fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Tell us about, about um, uh, world building and, and your backstory. First, are you a plotter or a pantser? How do you approach crafting your novels? Um, like I said, it's all over the place, um, but I'm constantly researching and reading. So it's all, and in various veins, I teach Victorian literature primarily. So, and I write in that, oh, it, generally in that mm -hmm. area or late, late Victorian, early Edwardian, that sort of thing. Um, so it's almost as if research is spread all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really sit down and write, here is my plot, here is my arc, here is how this is going to work or this character is going to fit in. A lot of it is intuitive and it comes from, I think, reading nonstop for a very long time. So I've developed a sense. I know I can't always figure out the answer. I often need to turn to, you know, beta readers and friends, family and say, something's not working here but just the sort of sense of what the pacing should be like when uh, various things should happen. It's um, sort of, I analogize it with um, the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. They actually had a set formula, how long you could go before there was a dance. Hmm. Okay. How long, if you're writing a Gothic novel, how long can you go before there's blood on the page? <laughs> right. So just sort of that, that, that sense and from teaching the Gothics, the great Gothics and, saying, all right, what's wrong here? How does this fit in? Um, but that's the sort of thing that's happening in the back of my head while I'm, you know, nursing a baby at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that I have charts or tables, or I would love to, I'd love to be that organized. But if I tend sure. to write things down and not hide them, mm -hmm. children come and add their notes. And then I really can't read what I've written. Yeah. Okay. I have to now ask a, <clears throat> a sort of a genre related question. Where do you pencil in or, or where do you place um, the Gothic genre? I, and I would assume as, as it might relate to say, I don't know, antiheroes and, and horror. It, it, are they in there together somewhere? There is a very close relationship. So the origins of the Gothic um, are the classic Gothic are primarily as a response to the high enlightenment. So there was this idea that, um, and you see this with the high romantics, they were turning and saying, yes, rational, uh, observational, scientifically based understanding of the world, fine and dandy, but what about everything weird and wonderful and twisted beyond? Hmm. Um, and that came with antiheroes. One of the greatest Gothic works is Frankenstein. And that was written by Mary Shelley, who was married to the adulterous intellectual prig of this of all time, uh, Percy Shelley, who was an extremely conflicted and troubled man who had a God complex. I mean, he was a really, really troubled man, very troubled, um, genius, but distasteful. As I tell my students, if Percy Shelley's in heaven, when I get there, God willing, I'm going to kick him in the shins if that's permitted, <laughs> just because he needs it. Um, invite him out to the pearly gates. It's like, hey, settle up. And then now, now we can. <laughs> yeah. St. Peter, like, now you can come back in. Um, no, it's so there is the sense of the fallenness of man mm. is all over the place, not only in the writers themselves, but in their characters. Because mm -hmm. when you have a world, when you recognize that the world has monstrousness in it and there's monstrousness and beyond because there is other 
beyond you know the natural world mm -hmm. it's basically supposed to be a funhouse mirror that looks inside and says oh but the monstrousness of me that's what the gothic's supposed to do and hopefully moral growth is supposed to come at the end of that or the damnation that monstrousness entails so either way gothic requires a clear moral arc it's great 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 grandchild horror doesn't necessarily require that arc so it can tend more to a sort of nihilistic darkness and corruption for corruption's sake so mm -hmm. Even though I'm sometimes classified with horror, I actually don't write horror. I write right. gothic. No, that makes sense. And and it's a little bit of a tangent here, but in terms of the tracing of the, I don't know, the development of that word, it started as meaning to the gothic peoples, and then it refers to, um, I think it was sort of a, a slur on, on cathedrals and pre-rational, I don't know, uh, structural development or whatever. And, and then now it's taken on another meaning. What would be this uh, latest meaning that how would you define that the latest meaning is almost as if you took the aesthetic trappings which had been satirized um and you uh associated it with certain behaviors and certain fashion um so when you think goth you're thinking dripping you know black fingernails and lots of jewelry well it's that's also drawing from the tradition to a certain extent, because you're right, there was an architectural distinction being made. We have the classical with the nice symmetrical columns, and then we have the irregular Gothic, and it's got gargoyles. So they're grotesque and weird and, and not um, just beautifully symmetrical and clean lines, clean lines in those in those classic classic um, in the classic tradition. Um, there's also a sense of pain in the Gothic. If you look at the difference between a uh, crucifix that's very classically, Jesus looks very composed there on the cross. Um, but if you go to a Gothic one, he's in torment and you're probably in Spain and he's, you know, he's, it's creepy and covered in blood, um, which is also fascinating and beautiful and very deeply Catholic. This is one thing that I, I said in my first novel and it's, or my first gothic novel and it's coming out again which is that catholics can battle the preternatural because we're weirder than the preternatural we really are weird we're weird and it's wonderful that is an awesome quote please unpack that for 30 seconds why are we how are we weirder than the preternatural because the preternatural is really just the natural world where little rules are being broken to creep people out we consume the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. We eat Jesus. I eat God. That is so much. We have disembodied floating heads of Jesus on a gold background. Veronica's mm -hmm. veil. That's what it looks like. So if it, it's that idea, you know, to the Greeks, we're ridiculous. To the modern world, we're insane. Mm -hmm. But it's also because we can see through the limitations of the natural world with the hope that we have and our understanding of the supernatural which is so far beyond the preternatural that mm -hmm. this is this is actually why my dominicans are such good vampire slayers they confect the eucharist on the mm -hmm. altar every day goblins are not scary they're sort of mundane and a little boring which is the other reason why my dominicans are not my narrators narrators in gothic novels cannot go this isn't a big deal right they, they have to be a little freaked out so that the reader can be Okay, so let's ask that question then. How do you craft uh, exciting good characters 
where it seems to be so easy today to default to really exciting bad characters and Mary Sue protagonists. And how do you break that? How do you avoid that and make a compelling, good character? I think that uh, you're hitting on something very important, which is that um, the problem of evil in literary terms is not remotely as huge as the problem of good. It's very hard to display good and not make it preachy, annoying, cloying, superficial. Mm -hmm. For me, I take refuge in humor. It's the way I be, it's the way I, like I said, it's an awkward coping mechanism, but it's also the way that I conceive of my good characters. It has to be funny because man's efforts in the face of reality and in, you know, in distinction from God's efforts mm -hmm. are ridiculous without grace. Mm -hmm. Without grace, we'd be monstrous, we'd be damned, et cetera, et cetera. We'd also just be patently absurd. Mm -hmm. So, a good character for me is one who embraces that absurdity and even delights in it. I should add a codicil though, especially in Brother Wolf, there are some characters whom I consider deeply good, but they don't necessarily have a sense of humor. Hmm. And that I think highlights the foibles or the predominant faults of those particular characters that not having a sense of humor can actually be indicative of a, lot, a lack of humility or a lack of easy charity it may not charity may not come to them as easily as others maybe deep down they're shy i don't know but that can be a bit of a handicap so from the perception for example of my protagonist there are some characters who are tremendously good and even impressively good and she's terrified of them and doesn't understand them and is timid of them and awkward around them because all she can think of is that person doesn't like me Right. And that's also very human, I think. Mm -hmm. So grounding goodness in these sorts of qualities hopefully makes characters relatable, mm -hmm. realistic. And like I said, not cloyingly preachy and stopping saying, I'm going to hold up the plot yeah. so that I can preach at you, which is mm -hmm. not my job. I'm not a preacher. I am a lay Dominican, but I am not a preacher. I leave that mm -hmm. to the friars. Right. I want to ask you about that in a second, how that maybe you feel that influences or guides, you know, how you approach this sort of thing. But one thing I was thinking as you were talking was maybe it's almost an unfair question then because, um, well, it kind of makes me think of that line from scripture where Christ says, you know, who is good, but God alone. So just stop, stop trying to be good. You know? And, um, someone once said that the only difference between a good guy and a bad guy in a story is that they both basically start in the same place. They both are dealt the same crippling hand of fate, accidents, problems, but the difference is in, in the response. The good one chooses to maybe take in the blows and get stronger and continue to find a way to do good, as painful as it might be, but then the bad, the bad can't let the evil go and he swallows it and it sours inside him and he turns it around into anger and causes problems. So in a way it's the same story, but they're two sides of the same coin. It's also like the two masks, the two classical masks of drama and comedy um, for something to be or I'm sorry, a tragedy and a comedy. A tragedy ends in death. A comedy ends in marriage. You could take Shakespearean comedies and if you just make the ending of death, it's a tragedy and vice versa. If Othello ended with a happy marriage scene, it wouldn't be a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So it's that that redemptive arc. What are we headed towards? Are we headed towards the marriage feast of the lamb or are we headed towards damnation it's the same for each character 
even if you're reading something like P.G. Woodhouse. Um, in, in terms of being a lay Dominican, how does that, does, does that intrude or influence or give you a set of guidelines or encourage you to actually go deeper and, and give you the confidence to be as dark and as fun as you are with these topics? Uh, any thoughts along those lines? I would say that it's, it's, um, pro very much, it does contribute, but it's also part of the whole the whole, uh, the whole me. So it's, um, although that sounds remarkably arrogant, is that it all comes together and it all works together. It's sort of like you okay. can't turn off one part and then turn mm -hmm. on the other part. But mm -hmm. I would say that the one of the biggest things that association with the Dominicans has done is uh, made me a stickler for precisely accurate terminology. Mm -hmm. So um, I have to to uh, laugh at myself because I'll find myself saying, well, wait, no, I can't just use this term. I have to use this term because this is the price precise meaning of this term. And this is the meaning of that term. And just make the precision imprecision makes me a little crazy. Um, but all of it does come together and I hope lead towards spiritual growth, even to the point of uh, drawing me towards Aquinas, which I, I love St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, especially because he can unite mysticism, which I fear, often have feared, is beyond me, but with intellectual, that intellectual precision and that scholarly pursuit. Um, my husband will laugh because he is, he's a philosopher. So the two of us will be very, very, let's just get it down in technical scholarly terms and, oh, emotions. Oh, let's just move those to the side. They're sort of messy. Um, but then having to say, all right, draw back the emotions into the spiritual life and learn to govern them and balance the intellectual pursuit with, we hope, steps towards contemplation. Um, that is, of course, what Dominicans aspire to do, to contemplate and share the fruits of their contemplation. Mm -hmm. I hate to burden with the late, the late Dominicans with the idea that um, I'm contemplating the Gothic, but it is, it does, it all feeds, it all feeds mm -hmm. and informs. And um, most recently in my uh, chapter, we were reading St. Louis of Granada mm -hmm. and Louis of Granada and his sinner's guide. I thought, yep, straight moral anthropology, character building, it all is interwoven, very, very intimately interwoven. Wow, how, um, how would you summarize the charism of the Dominican order? the uh to teach to preach um i would say that the charism of preaching which expresses itself in the lady and in myriad ways is just a very active engagement and proclamation of the truth which as a novelist i think has to be central to world building to character development if i'm not saying something that is grounded in the truth even if it's outrageous mm -hmm. um the way that i'm spinning it uh, it won't be a compelling or an interesting or even an entertaining story Mm -hmm. So truth is paramount for Dominicans and authors. Right. How um, are your stories primarily character driven or uh, event driven or it's like world driven? Does that question make sense? It does. It would be a hard thing for me to evaluate. I'm trying to think mm -hmm. an idea takes root. For, for example, my first gothic novel, Bloody Habit, a scene came into my head mm -hmm. after a nightmare inspired by a Dominican. And I wrote the scene and I could see who the characters were in it and the event that was happening. And then I had to figure out everything else. So 
it's probably a mixture of um, character and event driven mm -hmm. and the world comes with it, but that I find myself writing out scenes and then going back and saying, I don't know how these go together. Like the final climactic battle scene of Brother Wolf, mm -hmm. I wrote that very early on. And I just had to figure out all the other pieces to figure out what these characters were doing, how they got to this point. And then I had little other scenes that popped in my head and that I wrote down mm -hmm. at various other times. This is why I find pieces. Then I go, wait, this, this is essential. I just don't know yet why. That's awesome. How can people get in touch with you, Eleanor? I uh, have a website, www.eleanorboorgnichholson.com. Wow, that's long. Um, so my website, and there's a prompt there. People can get in touch with me there. I'm also on Facebook. Um, but yeah, I know if they reach out to me by my, by my website, I love to hear from people. So shoot me an email. We'll chat. Fantastic. I'll put that link in the, uh, the show notes as well. Thank you, because it would be mortifying if I misspelled my own name. <laughs> <laughs> and if you had one minute to share a message of encouragement to Catholic authors, what would you say? I would say if the desire to write is within you, respond to it and love it for its own sake. Love it as a vehicle that is getting you closer to God. I will say having things published is, oh, it's a, it's a trip, it's a delight, but it is not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing is that if you are called to tell a story, enjoy it, share it, and delight that God has given you that that opportunity and that that desire. I think that's perfect. What a great way to end. Thank you, Eleanor, for coming on with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey there, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please give it a thumbs up. Go ahead and uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, Spotify. You know, you can head on over to catholicauthor.us and join the mailing list and get notified uh, usually each Wednesday once a week of all of the new podcasts and blog posts that we've written and the updates going on in our community. But please do share up the one person that you think would really like to hear this particular interview uh, and maybe learn from the guest that we just chatted with. Um, you know, come and check us out at the community we're building in Catholic Author. It's the super friendly creative community for the modern Catholic author. Come and give, get feedback, share your insights and your works in progress, build a network of supportive friends. Plus, there's a whole lot more going on. Check us out. Join us at catholicauthor.us. Until next time, keep writing. <laughs>